We will continue with feelings today. There's so much to say about feelings. Uh, Without feelings, there aren't too many problems. But basically, when there are problems, it's because of feelings. But also, when we have joy and well-being, it's usually it's either caused by feelings or accompanied by feelings. So, back to this quality of feelings. There are two kinds, basically. One is of the body, and one is uh, generated through the mind, psychologically. <clears throat> and these are not always so easy to uh, distinguish. Consider what it feels like to have the flu. Or maybe it's not the flu. Maybe uh, This is a bad time to be talking about the flu, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yes, well, it's a good time to be talking about the flu. All kinds of people out there are wondering, do I have it? Do I have it? The COVID? And, or is it just because I'm being cooped up here for 36 days and not left my apartment? So there's lots of crossovers here where it's very hard to distinguish between psychological origin of feelings and the physical origin of feelings. And they play tennis with each other. So when you have a negative, painful bodily feeling, quite often you respond by generating a psychologically tragic feeling. Now this is one of the things the Buddha talks about and is one of the most important similes to remember. And this story or simile is called the second arrow. So a man is shot with an arrow and he then sticks another arrow into him. Strangely enough, this is very strange. We should make a YouTube video of this and just leave it with a question mark. Why did the man do this? Uh, that was, that's what we do. So when we have a painful physical feeling, that is the first arrow. And then the second arrow is the psychological arrow. So it's our sorrow, our, our aversion, our why me? I don't like this. I can't stand this. This is the second arrow. So the Buddha is saying, you know, it would be better if you just left it at one arrow. By the way, he he knows what those arrows are. Um, The Buddha himself had pain in his life. Certainly before he was the Buddha, when he was a bodhisattva, he was doing a lot of painful uh, practices, hoping that it might... uh, release him or liberate him somehow turned out to be futile. And after that, he strongly condemned uh, spiritual practices which are abusive and painful to the body. Types of practices that hope that somehow the castigation of the body, the infliction of pain on the body, will somehow be spiritually uplifting. The Buddha, in fact, says... To uh, practitioners of that at the time, he talks with them because he himself had indulged in it and, and later on realized it was a very foolish thing. 
He said, not only will it not increase your well-being and happiness, it, by inflicting pain on yourself, you don't actually purify yourself of past uh, what we might call in the West sins or spiritual transgressions or negative actions. And that's why people often do it. They, uh, they punish themselves hoping to relieve themselves from uh, guilt over things they have done or perhaps suspect they have done. The Buddha says to the practitioners of this that, in fact, this is not only does not relieve you of your past sins in any way, but you increase your sins. <laughs> you increase the burden of them by intentionally inflicting pain upon yourself. So it is the intentional infliction of pain on beings, including yourself, that is the negative, what's called negative karma. Karma, by the way, the Buddha says, karma, by the way, is chetana or intention. So it's the intention behind the infliction. So this is a mistake, and it's, uh, it goes on to this day. There are all kinds of uh, religious practitioners who believe that somehow the infliction of pain, scourging the body, inflicting pain on the body, enduring these things are uplifting and spiritually cleansing, and Buddha begs to differ. He's no fan either of the pleasure life. Now, this is where we have to distinguish, though, between the renunciants and the household life. He himself, of course, lived a very well-supported householder life. He was a prince and lived in a, a palace which seemed to be flourishing. And he recounts the various elaborate parties and the beautiful food and all of the sensory experiences one might expect as a prince of a wealthy kingdom and one who is bound to toward kingship to inherit it. But he looks back on those days as basically uh, shallow. Those kind of pleasure experiences of the senses are shallow and he dismisses them as well. So this is why we have something called the middle path. The middle path comes between a number of extremes, but here are those two of those extremes, the way of pain and the way of pleasure. And these are two ways that humans have attempted to transcend their problems, their issues, to seek well-being and happiness. Even those who inflict pain on themselves quite often you talk to them, it's, they have another ulterior motive, which is in some ways, uh, in some future, the relief of uh, their burdens, their, their pains. So they're trying to get to the end of pain through pain. But the Buddha says, no, that is not the way to the end of pain. And you, to try to get through to sustained well-being and pleasure through things which are not intrinsically sustainable, such as the sense pleasures. Pleasures of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. And this is one of the definitions of delusion the Buddha talks about. He says, to see permanence in what is impermanent, to see substance in what is insubstantial, to see satisfactoriness in what is intrinsically unsatisfactory. 
And this specifically refers to the types of pleasurable feelings that you can attain through sensory pleasure. Now, there's intrinsic and latent problems with this. If that's all the happiness that you know, and this is uh, very frequently, this is probably the great majority of humans on the planet, they don't know of any other source of happiness than those six. Those six being sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and processes of thought. Those are the sources of well-being and happiness. But... uh, They are intrinsically, they are illusions. They are phantasmagoria. Have you ever been on the highway on a hot day and you see this shimmering pool of water far down the highway and as you drive towards it, it just keeps keeps going farther and farther away from you? This is one of the similes the Buddha gives. He says, actually, deer apparently see this as well. He notes this. He's very interesting how much knowledge he has of animal behavior. He says, deer can see these, uh, these shimmering illusions as well that we see in the, and, and in the desert. You can see this shimmering water apparently shimmering on the horizon. It's just a play of light, right? So, and humans learn that as a child, uh, you, you're easily deceived. You're absolutely certain that it is really water there. But as you get older and you, and you, you realize how the trick is done, you stop believing it. Deer apparently uh, will run to death um, looking for that water. If they're very thirsty, they can see that shimmering mirage on the horizon. And they will run and run and run until they drop looking for that water. So this is the nature of these sense experiences. There's little, um, we might call uh, drops of honey, and accompanying the drops of honey are stings, bee stings. So this is another little story of the Buddha. I don't think I'll get around to it. It's a very elaborate story, but we receive our pleasure and pain from more or less the same source as in a bee's nest. So where do you get the honey? You get it from a bee's nest, but where do you get the stings from the bee's nest as well? So these sensory experiences, these little moments of happiness, a little drop of honey on your tongue, or the the little word honey being whispered into your ear, is also... The same source is the source of uh, being scolded and or not receiving. It's the source of bitterness as well. These tend to be trivial kinds of things. Bee stings aren't the worst unless you're um, allergic to them. (laughs) And by the way, uh, I suppose that reaction to being called honey and or being called something much more negative, (laughs) some people take it fairly lightly, they take it in their stride, but others are extremely moved by both praise and blame. So this is essentially just a word for praise and blame. They're hurt by blame, and they're exalted by praise. And so this is the nature of these things, the sensory experiences as well. So some people are just uh, swept away in the prospect of, of, of a new taste or a, a touch, a sight, a sound. 
or a new idea, and others are less so. And the more you are swept away, the more you will be cast down. Uh, so that these are, this is essentially what we're describing here is, is called attachment. And the deeper your attachment to the pleasure, also the deeper your aversion to the pain will be. So when you, when you invest in either, you are up for an eternity of, of dualities back and forth between pleasure and pain, ultimately never arriving at ease. So you can see how complex these two things are, but it's very important to sort them out. And the Buddha is such a, a lucid, He's, he's a logician as well. He just makes things easy for you, or a good teacher is what he is. So he divides these, he starts to, this quagmire of feelings, and many people cannot distinguish between their emotional structures and their uh, physical um, uh, structures. And doctors are always puzzling over it. A person comes and complains about this and that pain, and, this, and they wonder, you know, uh, I think it's, it's not really your body that's the problem here. I think it's some unresolved issue at home. <laughs> Maybe you're or at work. <clears throat> this, by the way, this confusion is actually rampant in the world. Uh, I don't think people appreciate it. I don't think even doctors appreciate it. It's only recently in psychology and in maybe neurology, neuroscience, that they really begin to understand that the brain processes these feelings that basically emotional pain and uh, physical pain are experienced the same way. And you can get relief from these through various uh, pain medications. You can get emotional relief through pain medications. You can get physical relief from pain medications. And, of course... These are wound together in a very elaborate braid. Some of the sort, for instance, addiction to painkillers, opioids and uh, heroin and morphine and, and things like this, are very, it's a very curious thing. Some people seem to have a high predisposition to addiction to this, and others don't. Strangely, the, the drug itself is not necessarily addictive. Many, many, millions and millions and millions of people are given morphine in hospitals and various grades of uh, heroin as well as a pain relief, and they never become addicted to it. They, in fact, find it... uh, They can't wait to get off of it. As soon as they can tolerate the pain, they prefer not to have it. But there's another type of person who um, immediately experiences it. One of these painkillers is pleasurable. It's a very curious thing. And so why would that be? At best, the, the person who is experiencing their, their psychological state is reasonably pleasant, experiences these painkillers as neutral at best. The person whose ordinary experience is painful experiences the neutralizing of that pain as positive. So there we go back to the talk from yesterday. Neutral feeling following pleasant feeling is experienced as unpleasant feeling. Neutral feeling following painful feeling is experienced as pleasant feeling. So that little teaching is not just a mere um, 
a mere curiosity or an interesting conversation between the the novice or the the, the young monk and the uh, lay the lay uh, dhamma practitioner, if you remember the conversation. This is uh, very useful, and so it tells you. Basically, if you're responding to pain medication in a positive way, you are in pain. <laughs> and if you're, if you're responding to pain medication in a negative way, it's because you're not in pain. You are in a positive psychological dimension. This gives a, a lot of insight into all kinds of human characteristics I won't have time to fully explore this. This could be the subject of an entire retreat itself. But this is, you see how rich this teaching on feelings are. Your feelings, bodily feelings, and then the psychological and the mental feelings, the inability uh, of some people to distinguish between the two, the, the difficulties of the, quote, brain, which we would call the mind, uh, distinguishing between these two. The Buddha is saying, you'd better find out how to distinguish between these two because when you put when the first arrow, which is inevitable, even the Buddha gets pain, right? He has pain. He has, at one point, he has pain in his foot. His, he was in a, an unfortunate uh, act of aggression by his, his cousin, Devadatta, who rolled a boulder towards him and it ended up hurting his foot. And in, the, in his old age, he ended up having a bad back. And he said, I'm never really out of pain. Uh, the back is not out of pain, except when I'm in jhana. The Buddha practiced jhana right to the end of his life. And when he was in the samadhi, he was out of the physical pain. But did he inflict, did he feel sorry for himself? Did the Buddha... You get 10 points on this if you answer this question correctly. Um, he did not feel sorry for himself. He, he saw that pain in his back as, first of all, uh, uh, impermanent, insubstantial, and something of the nature to rise and pass away. And he could see it that way. And because he could see it that way, he didn't have the, any corresponding emotional negative uh, experience. He didn't add to the pain. So this is uh, very important that we practice this. And this is not just a theoretical thing. This is something that you're going to have a chance in, in just ordinary life. No one gets around without stubbing their toes sometimes. Or, and to, to, stubbing your toes is a very interesting experience. Uh, it's a very sharp pain. There's so many nerves in your, in your toe. And, and it just... Next time it happens to you, just watch how you feel about the whole thing. Do you, is, it, is it a tragedy? <laughs> By the way, <laughs> here is the, one of the things that the Buddha says is to contemplate feelings internally, to contemplate feelings externally, to contemplate feelings both internally and externally. And what does that mean? Well, he actually never goes into great detail, so the commentaries are left... <laughs> Uh, parsing out what he really meant, and there's various theories about this. So, so you have a you have a subjective experience of feeling, and you can you feel it directly. Now, you can you can uh, you can feel it fr- subjectively from internally, 
and then the the possibility of the interpretation is you can imagine you can sort of step out of yourself and see i am a person in pain you can see yourself objectively so you can see yourself yourself so when you see yourself in a mirror you're seeing yourself objectively when you're seeing uh, uh, internally outwards you're seeing yourself subjectively however it also might be that you you also understand that the pains that happen to you are also experienced out there amongst other beings, other sensitive beings. So that's internally and externally. Now that, that would be very important because that's called empathy. And if you don't have it, and certain people don't, they're, they're, they don't project their own uh, experience of pain and pleasure to other beings. So they're, they don't respond to other people's... They're not interested in... in uh, increasing the joy and happiness of others by giving them pleasurable things and they're not uh they're not concerned about inflicting pain on other people because they don't extrapolate to internally and externally they don't see it that way that's called a psychopath (laughs) and so uh the buddha is the very opposite of that he is has solved his own issues around this and spends the rest of his life having realized that everybody's in this same situation, he goes out and tries to, as skillfully as possible, share these ideas with people. And by the way, you know, he's, he's not just interested in the reputation for being a brilliant person or being uh, worshipped as, as a Buddha He's really interested in communicating. He doesn't care about how, what people, uh, how, uh, how much they appreciate him, etc. He's, he's very dismissive of that. He's really interested in communicating. And he's communicating with children sometimes. He's communicating with villagers. And he's communicating with royalty sometimes. He's, he's, I don't care who it is, whether you're wealthy or not, you're in the same situation. Kings die in agony as well as peasants. Children die in agony as well as old people. They all are all subject to this, and they all need to know as much as they can about this. And, by the way, children can know this stuff. The youngest arahant on record, as I recall from the Guinness Book of Records of Young Arahants, <laughs> no, there is no such thing, uh, was uh, eight years old. Uh, was it Daba the Malian? Uh, who attained arahantship, having his head shaved to become a novice. While he was having his head shaved to become a novice, he became an arahant at eight years old. So this is the Mozart of, um, of, of uh, Dhamma practitioners. That means he understood the difference between these types of pains, and he no longer had any psychological issues about uh, psychological uh, negative states. These, he didn't have any f- further mood uh, disorders. He was, though, subject to, of course, physical uh, pain. He, if he stubbed his toe, it felt like when you stub your toe, but he didn't make a melodrama out of it. So this is uh, information not just for adults but for children. And, uh, and, of course, in Buddhist countries, the monks do talk to children and explain these things to them, but uh, uh, in the West, uh, much less so. Uh, so those who are parents out there or, or uncles or aunts uh, or 
know people with children, this is something to sit down with a child and just explain it. They can understand this. You know, at least some of them can. They can understand it. Don't add to your pain when you when you fall down and injure yourself like this is this leave it at that. That's bad enough. We don't want to add any more to it. And then the other teaching is about, you know, the, the way you feel when you have pain. That's the way other people feel when they have pain. They feel just like that. Yeah, you when you stub your toe, it's just like when your sister stubs her toe. Yeah, she also feels that. This is the development of wisdom. At, because this is the way it is, and it is also the development of compassion, uh, empathy, to understand others as yourself. So, now I want to just talk a little more about um, this, the attitude towards the two types of feelings. And this is where often... Dhamma and Dhamma teachers sometimes go off the track. So, the Buddha is encouraging you in terms of your physical, the feelings which derive from the body, pleasant, pleasant, uh, neutral, and painful, that you can see them with detachment that you can see a painful feeling just as a painful feeling. You can see neutral feeling just as neutral feeling. You can see pleasant feeling just as pleasant feeling. These are uh, sensory uh, physical feelings. And here's where the confusion comes in. People think that also applies to psychological feelings that when you're feeling painful psychological emotions, that you somehow can be detached and a detached observer of that. And then when you're feeling happy emotions, that you can be a detached observer of that. Uh, Pleasant, neutral, and painful psychological conditions, you're not detached from those, no. You can't be detached and in it at the same time. You're not out of it and in it at the same time. Physical feelings, yes, you can be out of it. You can stand outside of it and see it at the same time. But those generated from psychological things, moods, and these are uh, the negative ones, are in summary called the five hindrances. Anger and greed and agitation and sloth, depression, etc., and uh, indecision, doubt, so forth, are the negative emotional conditions. You are not detached from those. You are not observing them with detachment. You are immersed in them. You are creating them and sustaining them. Now, you may not think you are. You think, I didn't, I didn't make myself sad. It just happened. I just am. <laughs> I'm not, I didn't make myself angry, I just, it just happened to me. No, it didn't, uh, actually, uh, it rose because of conditions and causes which have been laid down in the past. There are causes for these things, and that's why it arose. You didn't make any particular effort, it seems spontaneous, but it's not spontaneous. 
It's because of preliminary causes that these things happen. And so, this is really very, very important. I hear the whole schools of, of thought around this where you are kind of merely observing these uh, negative emotions and you're thought to be somehow detached from them. That is not how the Buddha explains this. So it's very important in terms of feelings that you understand the difference between body feelings and emotional feelings. And that you don't uh, aren't confused, and it's possible to leave only one arrow in. If you have physical feelings, it is possible to leave one arrow and not add the, the second one. If the second one is added, you're, you don't, you're not able to look at both with detachment. You're able to look at the first arrow with detachment. The second arrow is your attachment. <laughs> you are attached. <laughs> this is the essence of this. This uh, you, by the way, so this is, uh, you go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or you go to the monk and you have, you're trying to sort things out. You have uh, emotional distress, you have an anger problem, you have a depression problem, you have this problem or that problem. And now the monk, hopefully, is detached from your problems. <laughs> the monk is not, not feeling your anger, is, not, is detached from your anger from your greed, from your confusion, from your sadness, etc. Because there's someone else, but you can't be detached from that. That is your attachment. That is what is meant by attachment. So this is a very uh, important uh, distinction, and it's quite often misunderstood. Where is the roots of this misunderstanding? It's somewhat in um, the fact that both both your uh, pleasant emotional feelings, negative emotional feelings, and neutral emotional feelings, and are, are all ha- share something. They all share something in common. They're all impermanent, insubstantial. And therefore, uh, they, have, they are not two. So this is where this word non-duality, which I almost never, ever use because I don't, I don't find it in the uh, Pali Canon. I don't find Advaita or non-duality. Uh, I find it quite a, it just tends to be a confusing term, but they both participate, both negative and positive things participate in something. They all, they're both completely impermanent. That doesn't mean that you treat them the same. They are not, um, it's not possible to view them as the same the fact that they have that in common is more or less irrelevant in some ways. What's relevant is that the, the definition of attachment, what is the definition of attachment? And what is the definition of not attached? The Buddha has no attachments. And then what are his mental states? They're all in the range of the positive. They're all in the seven factors of enlightenment. That's the composition of the enlightened mind. And so these, it is not a matter of indifference or neutrality or non-duality between these two. The five hindrances, the seven factors of enlightenment, uh, some of them participate in these negative emotions. Some are in the positive sides. They are both impermanent, but that does not mean that you regard them both with detachment. Physical 
feelings one way or the other, yes, you do, and you can. By the way, so should we go around testing ourselves? Should we just ignore our pain and um, be a good ascetic practitioner of this? No. Buddha is quite interested in relieving physical pain. It's not especially beneficial or productive. So what are the types of emotional states which help with physical pain? And one of them is the practice of loving-kindness. You know, this thing when, you're, when you fall down as a kid, you scrape your knee and then you're wailing away and your mother kisses it better, right? So uh, that's a little trick there. Very skillful. Uh, a kiss, sometimes re- a congratulations, a hug, etc. Sometimes uh, relieves pain because uh, uh, expression, what, it, what is it? It's sympathetic loving kindness so that you, you, feel, you feel embraced and uh, and that relieves your physical pain. That also relieves your uh, psychological pain quite often as well. So metta, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity all are very good antidotes to pain which cannot be relieved through just uh, physical manipulation or uh, aspirin or painkillers. So you actually may be able to live or not even experience some bodily pain, some, which some people find extremely painful. Others do not. This is the mystery. Why does one person feel the same condition, something like a broken bone or a, a cut or a bruise? Some people find it very painful. Others do not. And part of that is the anesthetic quality of uh, loving-kindness. It is a pain reliever. And so you can practice this as well. If you do have kind of ongoing chronic pain, and this is actually known in in circles uh, for... This is starting to be known in uh, pain clinics. There are doctors who specialize in uh, relief of pain because some people have... There are... Uh, ailments of the spine and uh, the neck and the muscles, sciatica and things like this that are really uh, excruciating and very hard to live with. And uh, they have all of these pain medicines, but almost all of the pain medicines have side effects and have their own issues with them as well. And sometimes they stop working. So they, they work for a while, but then it's very, very awkward. So some pain specialists have discovered this thing called metta, loving-kindness, and in fact have classes on to induce a sense of loving-kindness. They have people in wheelchairs and all kinds of situations come into the pain clinic, maybe lying down or propped up because it doesn't have to be any sort of formal posture to this. Remember one of the things that Loving-kindness works in all four postures, standing, walking, sitting, lying down, meaning all postures. Loving-kindness works in all postures. And so this is a a form of physical pain relief, not to mention psychological pain relief. So even even very tragic situations, you know, approaching death and so forth can be relieved. Somehow loving-kindness 
makes it all worth while. It it uh, is intrinsically meaningful. You can't perhaps express the meaning, but it does make things worth it. So these are some of the... So when, when we talk about these feelings, you know, bodily feelings and mental uh, feelings, and of three types, the Buddha is sort of putting them all out on the table, as a good teacher should, and allowing you to look at it, allowing you to divide it into two parts, the body and the, the mind, and then, then into three parts and so forth, and, and then into six to, to be aware of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and ideas. And uh, so this is nice. You get to lay it out, and uh, then you, you start to... When you can see things like this, you're less in a state of fear and confusion around these things. Because so much fear and confusion in our lives rises around the, the possibility of these painful feelings, these negative feelings. And also the, the, the part of the fear arises from the aspiration, the hope, the, the wish for pleasant feelings. So we have to, we have to really go into this. this is, these, are, these are not just philosophical ideas. These are not just fancy ideas from people who live in monasteries. These are everyday ideas and when you see that these ideas are not well understood, you'll see tragic situations unfold in people's lives. And not only in individuals' lives, but if the whole culture doesn't understand this, the whole culture will also experience this uh, great problems. In fact, this is a condition right now, especially in North America, with uh, trying to deal with pain, uh, emotional pain and physical pain. One thing you see is this vast uh, epidemic, this opioid epidemic, fentanyl epidemic, all kinds of drug problems because people don't know how to deal with physical pain and they don't know how to deal with uh, psychological pain and they don't know the difference between the two and they don't know how they arise and they have very little insight into these. So you can't fix this with pills. The roots of this are only fixable by wisdom. They're not fixable by any other source. As long as you remain ignorant, uninformed, and the culture misinforms you about these things, there's no hope. But when you get good information about this, such as this very talk, <laughs> no credit to Ajahn Sona. It's strictly from the, the Buddha, and uh, this is one of, it's, it's summarized in the Satipatthana Sutta, in a very brief form. You need to explore it in other suttas, etc. In the Satipatthana Sutta, it's just given in the briefest of forms, the, the body, feeling, three types of feelings, and the body and, the, and the, the mind. So to know about this, you really need to explore all kinds of uh, other teachings, and you need to reflect on it yourself and then practice them yourself in order to, uh, to be proficient in it, to find the actual positive effects, that, that, that this teaching works. And then, hopefully, if you, can, uh, if you can share it, even if with one other person, you might share it with your, a child your, or a relative or your husband or your wife or a friend or a co-worker or something. This can be a, a gift from heaven, you know. So I will leave this uh, for feelings for now, and we will be moving on in the next uh, few talks to the mind and to 
uh, Dhamma categories as well. 